Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for coming today and welcome to Sydney Writers' Festival 2022. My name is Hannah Kent and I am delighted that you're all here for this session of Your Favourites Favourites. I would like to first acknowledge that we are speaking and listening and storytelling here today on the unceded country of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to all elders, past and present, and I would like for us all to take a moment to consider and honour the sharing of story that has taken place here for millennia. Today, it is my very great pleasure to be speaking with SJ Norman about their extraordinary debut, Permafrost. SJ Norman is a writer, curator and artist whose work spans multiple disciplines, including performance, installation, sculpture, text, video and sound. Their work has been commissioned by the uh, Performance Space New York and the National Gallery of Australia, amongst others, and they were also recently awarded the Blake Prize, which I think deserves a round of applause. Thank you. If that weren't enough, their writing has also won or been placed in numerous prizes, including most recently the Stella Prize and also the Kill Your Darlings Unpublished Manuscript Award, which they won. And they are also the co-curator of Knowledge of Wounds, a global gathering of queer First Nations artists. Please join me in welcoming SJ to the stage. Everyone. <laughs> Permafrost. What's that, honey? I said thanks, Hannah. <laughs> You're welcome. Permafrost is uh, an incredible book. Um, for those of you who haven't read it, uh, this won the in manuscript form, the Kili Darling's Unpublished Manuscript Prize, which I mentioned before, and this was the first time that I read it when I was a judge of that award. And it was, amidst the hundreds of entries that we received that year, the, the very clear winner from the outset. Um, it is an incredible collection of short stories, each, com each beautifully written, each touching on some incredible themes that I'm really looking forward to exploring with you today. And I'm so excited to, to be talking to you all about it. And I'm so excited for you all to read it if you haven't yet already. I thought I'd start today by asking you, SJ, how Permafrost came about, because I know it's been a long time coming. Oh yeah, it really has. If you have read any of the interviews that I've done about this book, you'll know that most of the material in Permafrost is like more than 20 years old. Um, I wrote this book when I was a baby. Uh, I'm pushing 40 now. I'm about to turn 38 on Monday, actually. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday. Taurus Gemini cusp. Um, and uh, I started writing Permafrost when I was 19, and I, um, I finished the bulk of what would become that book by the time I was about 24, and then I kind of shelved it mm. for, like, a, more than a decade. What made you shelve it? You know what? I still don't really know. Right. I don't really know. I got, kind of got busy with other stuff. Yeah. Um, I think a few things. I think... Uh, I don't, yeah, I, just, I don't know. I still don't know. I think uh, some, maybe part of it was a loss of faith, um, which I think is something that you negotiate every day mm -hmm. in one way or another as a writer. I don't know any writer at any level of quote-unquote success, however that is defined, that doesn't deal with like, crushing doubt on a daily basis. Um, and I think, that was, I think that was part of it. Mm. I think I had other things going on in my life that were more urgent mm. 
than, than writing at that point. Um, like, you know, staying alive for a start. Um, I, I moved to Berlin when I was 25. I lived there for the better part of 11 years. I've actually literally just gotten back last week from mm. a trip. And um, that, that was a whole situation and a whole time in my life which, you know, which has, in, has informed subsequent writing that I've done, but it wasn't necessarily possible for me to, uh, to work not, not to write during that time. I, I, no, that's not true. I was, I was continuously writing all that time. I just wasn't working on this particular project. Mm. Um, that, and also, you know, I had another career, like, as a visual artist and a performance artist, and that was paying me better, mm. <laughs> to be honest. People were offering me more money to do stuff, you know. It's good to it's say, though. shameful what writers get paid. But these are the very practical considerations, <laughs> yeah. too. And sometimes it makes you think what books haven't yet been published because For real. of these I things. know, I think that every day. Which is why it's so wonderful to every, have festivals yeah. like this, to support writers. Yeah. I think, um, <clears throat> what made you return to it? What made, oh, you've said before that you wrote most of the stories, but mm. I know with this, there are seven ghost stories in here. Yeah. The last one, it comprises a third of the book. And yeah. I, I've heard you say that that was the last one that you wrote. What, when you were writing these stories, were you conceiving them one day to be a possible collection? Yeah, and I so thought of it as a collection. what brought you round to, to, to write playback, which really caps off all the themes and things that you start to introduce with the first six? Mm. Um, well, there is, yeah, like you say, playback is the only, that's the newest piece of work. I think I started writing playback, it would have been just after I won the Kill Your Darlings Prize. Uh, because I knew that I needed to, like winning that prize committed me to finishing the manuscript. Um, and, I, you know, I'd, I'd kind of, uh, when I just, I just want to backtrack a little bit. When I say that I'd pulled it, that I'd put the book aside and forgotten about it, that's not strictly true. I would pull it out every couple of years and tinker on it and work on new things. And, um, and sort of, but I had never, I never completed a new story in between, you know, over the 10 years that it was on the shelf, in between when I moved to Berlin and when I submitted it to the Kill Your Darlings Prize. And I submitted it to that prize because I was like, I need to either finish this thing or kill it because it's just been around, it's mm. been hanging around, taking up energy and, and gathering dust for so long. And I had, I'd, I'd tried to get interest from publishers in it before. Um, it had had some interest, but a lot of knockbacks. I, you know, I, I had I had put it out there and tried to get momentum on this project, but it just no one was was particularly interested. Um, and uh, I knew I I knew that I had to finish it. And I knew that really for it to be a complete for it to be complete, that was the story that I needed to write. And I think I started writing that one. Yeah, when was it? That would have been 20, 2018 I started work on Playback. Mm. And it's by far the longest. As you say, it's really, it's a, it's a novella. Mm. And I guess that was, I didn't intend to write such a long form piece, but I guess it gave me a good chance to stretch out into something a little bit more structurally complex than what most of the other stories in the collection are. Mm. Maybe touching on some slightly more layered and mature themes, you know. Um, yeah, it wasn't... It wasn't, I'm very intuitive in how I work. I don't tend to plan things. I just will often start a story with literally a line that comes into my head and then see where it goes. And um, that's where playback started and that's, that's how the story kind of unfolded. Just this, I'd been up 
you know, in a kind of estuarine area and had been up early listening to the birds and... And that's where it came that's, from. That was it, yeah. For those of you who haven't read Permafrost yet, would you perhaps describe, because it is such a huge part of this uh, collection, describe briefly what playback is about and then maybe mm. offer us a brief reading from it just to get us in the mood? <laughs> I'm interested to know because I know what it's about. But the thing is, like, the thing is, I am really interested in hearing uh, other people's interpretations of, of the material because they're so wildly different. Sometimes what people pick up on and what people see in different, different stories is so different to what the story that I thought I wrote. Okay, you know? all right. So I'm, I'm interested. I can do this. To, yeah. You put me on the spot, I yeah. can do it. Sorry. So sorry. The, the, no, playback is this beautiful uh, story, uh, an account of a character who has returned um, to a place of childhood from uh, an extended period overseas. They're waiting for their, their partner in art and also their lover to join them there. And what instead happens is that they find themselves alone. And the story, <clears throat> this, the character in this story is an artist who works with sound. And as they process the grief of realising that they have essentially been abandoned um, and are also suddenly thrust back in this environment, which is bringing back a lot of memories, um, both direct and indirect from the past, they find themselves starting to record the atmosphere around them. And what then occurs is a, a, a kind of an articulation, a very ambiguous articulation of a spectral experience yeah. that, that is so much more about the experience, I find, of being haunted than it is about the ghosts themselves, although they are there at the periphery. Yeah. How did I do? No, you did great. Amazing. <laughs> Way better than I would have done. Thanks. Way Thanks, better than SJ. I would have done. Okay, that's my elevator pitch done. Would you do us the honour of reading from sure. it, though, to give you a sense of, uh, to give you all a sense of the beautiful way that SJ can evoke this kind of atmosphere? My nights are deep and soundless. I've stopped dreaming. Every morning, there's a moment suspended in that grey space between sleep and waking in which there is no sensation. I'm just a body, a set of lungs and a heart that beats easily. Every morning, sunlight splits the drapes. Every morning, the birds. Every morning, I set my feet into the thick carpet next to my bed and hold them there, anchoring myself. I walk to the kitchen, into that golden light. The water, I can see it. I can't see it, but I can feel its cool proximity. I can smell the brine rising. I sit on the blue sofa in the sunroom with my eyes closed and the window open, listening to the currawongs, the morning rumbles of the estuary, the splutter of small engines. The currawongs, the river traffic, these are my bone songs, my home frequencies. These are the sounds that have held me since I was born and never failed before now to sing me back into this ground that grew me up. This time, this homecoming, there's a signal failure, not dissonance, not interference, just a vacuum where resonance should be. This place is named for the meeting of salt water and fresh. It sits at the top of a crooked phalanx of land that separates the river from the sea. I landed on a Tuesday, midday. I shelled out for a taxi. It's a long drive from the airport, more than an hour along the coastal road when it's choked with summer traffic. I remember the journey, that bright morning of my arrival, crumpled in the back seat, swollen and gritty after 30 hours in the air, 
acrid breath of molten bitumen, hot vinyl clinging to the backs of my arms, the radio and the sunlight and everything else turned up too high, too loud. It had been a long time since I'd traveled that stretch of road, a decade, nearly. Every detail was searing. I remember rounding the bend at the top of the South Headland, the clench in my heart at the sight of the ocean. The swell was huge that day, signs planted in the sand beach closed. Days before I flew out, the whole coast had been pummeled by heavy storms. This part had been spared the worst of it, but further north, the tide had been rough enough to wash a Russian coal ship up on the beach. I'd seen pictures in the news before I left and shown them to Elka. Can you believe this shit, I said? The massive red hull wedged into the sand. That's about an hour north of where we're going. As the taxi rounded every crook in the road, I took an inventory of what was still there and what was not. I recall a scattered assemblage, sights and sensations piling up, salt bush, cicadas, the hairpin turn at the top of the headland, the sudden bilious descent into town. Town being two intersecting streets and a sleepy cluster of shop fronts. Rounding the final bend in the road, the sudden revelation of the estuary, a silvery expanse of flat water, small craft in their moorings, that little strip of sand, the ferry wharf. The tide was out when I passed by that morning, exposing the pylons, densely adorned with kelp and oyster shells, that ashen strip of sand strewn with post-storm debris, a pack of boys, maybe in their early teens, slouched against the rails, arms folded against their bare brown torsos, a pelican on a lamppost, incongruously large and perfectly still. The video easy was gone. The bakery, that was still there. The bolo and the arcade and the chicken shop, they were all still there. The news agency, that was gone. The local primary school, a cluster of demountables on a, block, on a block of balding grass that was still there, shut it up for the holidays. The big bloodwood tree, the one that stood at the corner of Caulfield Road and Lime Street, the tree that bled rubies, that was gone. 86 Caulfield Road, still there, as it always has, had, had been and as I knew it would be. The same glowering, heavy-set windows and the same crumbling plasterwork, the same three cars parked out the front. As the taxi rolled past, I peered through the foliage to the dark glass of the kitchen window, and for a moment, I thought I made out the fleeting shape of a person, a smudge of black hair, a trail of smoke. I thought about asking the driver to stop. A block or so past 86, Caulfield Road inclines sharply and ascends via an arcade of red gums, eventually dog-legging into a cul-de-sac to Rainier Crescent. The last street, the end of town, a row of big houses behind high walls. This town has always been home to strange polarities. The flat, dusty, gutted streets around town leading to the beach, that's one world. That's the world that I knew as a child. Up here on the hill, that's a different story. Terrania Crescent is home to a discreet cluster of mansions behind high walls. Built before there was really even a town here, built before there was a road in or out of this place. All the houses on the hill have private moorings left over from a time when this part of the coast was only accessible by boat. 
the perfect spot to build a retreat as a pre-war ruling class bohemian. Lots of old, white, eccentric money and at least one dissipated former recording artist. Beyond that brace of big houses, thick scrub guards the sheer precipice down to the estuary with its tea-dark waters and circling bull sharks. The trees there rain cicada shells in the right season. We used to go up there and collect them. I remember my cousins, Jack and Nairi, running ahead of me, scab-kneed and feral, all the way to the top of the hill. We'd find different points of access to the inscrutable snare of brush that hummed with wild sounds. Thank you so much, Esther. My pleasure. Playback is one of, if not the only story in this collection which takes place on a familiar landscape. In fact, what I think marks so many of the earlier stories, such as we have Hinterhouse, where someone is in a Berlin apartment in a very almost abandoned sort of neighbourhood, and they move between there and a local bakery in freezing temperatures, to White Hart, which is set in a sort of a very old folklorish English village, ye oldie village. And then we, we have, you know, one set in a secondhand bookstore, which is, you know, permeated with dust and is thick with the grease of, of the hands of readers who have been there before. But in all of these stories, you, Permafrost, another remarkable story in this collection where the narrator travels to Japan, all of your narrators, and they all tend to be, all of these stories are in first person, mm -hmm. they're all estranged from familiar places. Yeah. What do you think that the ghost story is the perfect vessel to explore ideas of belonging and estrangement? I feel like a ghost in a lot of spaces, mm. you know? Like, I feel like the ghost. Um, and I've certainly had, yeah, I'm, I'm a, I've, I've moved around a lot my whole life, but particularly in my adult life. And that's, to a certain extent, been purposeful and to, to a certain extent been circumstantial. And I'm someone who, I'm negotiating, like, thresholds of different kinds, be they like physical or somatic or internal, psychological, spiritual thresholds or, or real thresholds like borders and places. And um, uh, I'm an insomniac, like I really struggle with the threshold of sleep, which is something which is really yeah. present in permafrost, um, is that, that kind of the hypnagogic kind of space between sleep and wake. So I think it's like... There's something about threshold states of various kinds that produce spectres, right? Um, and, and produce spectral experiences. And I, I think I've had... Most of the ghosty shit that's happened to me for real in my life has happened when I've been in states of some kind of estrangement, be that physical estrangement with space or within my body or, you know, there's a... There, I think our, maybe our capacity to perceive uh, non-physical or non-corporeal realities or beings is to a certain extent maybe facilitated by that kind of psychic rupture. Um, so yeah, that, uh, to an extent that was so, uh, an experience that I was trying to capture in a really concrete way in this book. You know, I'm, I was not... I'm not disinterested in more traditional forms of the ghost story. I love a good ghosty yarn. I'm a black fella, like you're brought up on ghost stories. Um, 
and they're, you know, ghost stories are a part of every storytelling tradition on the planet. Uh, but they are, there's, they're formalised and there's conventions to them, right? And I was really interested in, in researching and writing this book and getting to know deeply what the conventions of the ghost story are in different cultural contexts and then figuring out how you could kind of play with that uh, and rethink how you tell a ghost story, you know, how to expand all those conventions or how to evade them or how to, how to disrupt them and bring, bring the voice or the experience into a space of greater immediacy mm. and maybe try, or what I tried to do at least, was to capture, as you said, the, the actual experience of being haunted, which if you've been haunted or you've, you've had, you know, had sort of spectral experiences in your life of different kinds, it's often really banal, mm. you know. It's actually just like the same kitchen door opening over and over again, you know. It's not... There's, there's, there's not a narrative arc to the way that those experiences work, usually, um, which is part of what makes them so unsettling, you know? And um, I think that repetition of, like, and this, this that the, re the repetitive aspects of things is often what is, is like, what, like I said, really unsettling, actually. Mm. Um, and the lack of resolution, too, you know? Yeah. Ghost stories as a literary form or as a, as a, as a storytelling form typically have some kind of resolution. You get to know what that ghost wants, mm. you know. You get to know who they were and the Victorian lady points to the where she's buried or whatever. And that's not how, that's not how it works, IRL, you know. And that's, that's the creepy part, mm. <laughs> you know. So that was some, I think it's, you know, readers' responses to the stories have been really mixed in some ways because I understand that what people want from a, from a yarn is, is, a, is a yarn and they want it to end, they want it to end. Yeah. And I was very purposeful with these stories that they, that they wouldn't deliver on that, mm -hmm. that they would stay, remain in a kind of ambiguous or, or not unresolved place, but um, a, a haunted place, you know. Mm -hmm. You, you articulate that so beautifully. And it's interesting you mentioned the word unsettling because I think this is the word that I've seen most frequently associated in reviews and, and you know, in responses to this book. And it's certainly something that I felt. Yeah. Um, I don't know, I, there's, I, I had the incredible sensation, having read this manuscript, of I, I likened it to attending a seance where afterwards the ghosts don't ever leave you, that you in turn just starts to carry them around. I mean... I don't like to use the phrase it gets under your skin because it's a cliche and it's used, been used too much so that now it doesn't really have any meaning. But that was the feeling I had. It was of, being, of having that spectral experience being passed on so that you then inhabit it. And so much of that comes from, like you say, the intentional ambiguity the lack of neat conclusion that is in every single one of these stories, to the point where sometimes you're flipping pages back and forth saying, what, what happened? You want to reread it. But also the banality of it too. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about that because it's one thing to have a, a deep appreciation, as you do, of the experience of being haunting, of being haunted and the difference between, you know, the Western canon of, say, Gothic literature where you have these sort of neat ghost stories and they're very much IRL experiences. But how do you convey that in prose? How do you use a creative practice to distill that kind of the banality of those experiences. Mm. How do you make the familiar unfamiliar? You know, give me my, give, give me give my tricks away. Yeah, please do. No. <laughs> 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 I 
<laughs> no. Is there something? Okay, let me give an example, right? So, I can I say how I think? Yeah, you do yeah, it? please. I think it comes down to your exquisite use of language, and the very the subtle metaphors of ordinary things, uh, of subtle metaphors, and the description of ordinary things that permeate this work. Some things, and they stay with you, much like the ghost from this from this collection as well. I always remember your description of a man coming into the bakery in Hinter House, where it's in the middle of the night, and the narrator is sitting there having a cup of coffee, and you describe. His, his bald head with the remaining wisps of hair sticking to his pate like a lozenge covered in lint found in an old pocket. <laughs> and you have this other beautiful... I mean, it's just amazing. And you have, you know... That's a, a good one, isn't oh it? Oh, God, it was so yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're not giving away your tricks, I'm going to allude to them. And, but you also have, you know, it just... I think so, so much of it comes from... So the power of this work comes from the fact that you can't work out exactly how you have come to feel so unsettled and to get this sense of unease. But it's because you see the work with... I remember another phrase, you know, a plug hole will choke on the last of the remaining bath water. So that by the time you have finished reading, you've sort of subconsciously collected all these references and everything's been thrown off kilter. But I did want you... You're not getting away with this. I, I did want you to maybe allude to the ways in which when you were sitting down to write a story like this, to write about a haunting... Does it change the way that you, in turn, regard the familiar? Mm. Let me rephrase it mm. for you. Sorry. No, you're good. You're just... good. When you sit, I can tell you just don't want to tell us how you no, do I it do. because then like... we'll all be writing prize-winning books. I think. Um, how do you, when you sit there, is there something that you yourself, as you move through life, mm. find deeply unsetting that other people don't? Oh, everything. So what are the, <laughs> and perhaps, and, and what are those things, mm. and and why do you think that um. is the case? Just, I, I, was, I wasn't evading your question. I was actually just like trying to give you a deep and considered answer. You're still very welcome. Because I've got lots of things to say <laughs> about that, um, about estrangement and the familiar. Yeah. I, was, I, I was kind of thinking about, you know, um, so, so for instance, the story that you just mentioned, Hinter House, like that story references the work of E.T.A. Hoffman, who mm. was a... German writer, like what, like early, late, eight, 19th century or something. The, the, uh, a, a German writer who wrote sort of horror stories, I guess, and is the, is the writer who was referenced by Freud in his essay on Das und Heimlich, on, on The Uncanny, right? So, which is, you know, one of these things that is talked a lot about when we're theorising about horror, particularly about Gothic horror, and it's this process of, of you know, we. We say the uncanny, but it really means the unhomely. Das unheimlich means the unhomely, and it means, you know, the, the making strange of things, the making strange of familiar objects, you know, when you look at a, a, a door and it's no longer a door, or you look at, you know, the, um, like, like, the, 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 like what I mentioned before was like walking into the kitchen and finding that a, you know, that a cupboard door is suddenly left open. You know, these kind of moments of estrangement where something is not where it should be. Mm. And then when that something is not where it should be, suddenly everything is not where it should be. And there is a, a sense of something else asserting itself from underneath or from, from under the kind of construction of our everyday lives and experiences. And we experience that in dream states, you know, um, we experience it in different ways. Uh, it's a very roundabout answer to your question, but... It's a good one. I guess 
Um, I guess there's also, you know, this just relating back to this, you know, bringing up the question of the unhomely and das Unheimlich as an idea more broadly. Um, I've never necessarily experienced home either as a singular place or necessarily as a safe place. Mm. Um, you know, if you are, for instance, someone with a severe sleep disorder, as I, do, as I have, then your bed, which is supposed to be this space of comfort, mm. becomes this, like, space of great anxiety, right? So familiar... Familiar spaces and environments and even your own body can become estranged from you, like, so much more. Our relationship with those things can rupture and become loaded with all kinds of <laughs> deeply held anxieties that we didn't even know were there. And that process can be catalyzed by all kinds of things. It's a really tangled answer to your question, but um, I guess the way that I've tried to approach that in terms of the prose is keeping it really, really concrete and really focused on the body mm. and focused on physical relationships in space. And that's just that's, that's how I work as an artist. That's how I work as a writer. I'm very, very focused on physicality um, and on um, the kind of the, the, the visceral experience of, of tactile life. Mm. So I think in this book in particular, even though it's a book of ghost stories, I was really interested in looking at the kind of tension between the corporeal and the non-corporeal and that because that for me is kind of like the grist of what makes a ghost a spectral experience so very unsettling is because we're sitting here in our bodies in, in, in sort of like physical concrete consensus reality and then you have something else that disrupts that, you know, um, disrupts the primacy of that reality. Uh, if that makes sense. It makes absolute sense. Yeah. I think that's a very good answer. It speaks directly to the, to, the, to the question, in fact. I wanted to ask you, too, something which is also, I think, probably worth discussing in this book is the fact that these first-person narrators, uh, uh, their, their identity, their gender, their sexuality is never articulated. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about that, because obviously it's a very deliberate decision and whether this was a conscious choice to further disorient the reader mm. and give them sort of a lack of, uh, I guess, something concrete, or mm. whether it was a contribution to the, the malleable, ephemeral nature mm. of the stories, rather than me offer solutions, I mean, or, or my interpretation yeah. of why you might have done this. Did you yeah. want to speak to that? Sure. Uh, well, the narrators are ghosts too, mm. in their way, in their way, you know. I think there is a, there's a line in playback where the character is remembering something that, that their mother said to them once about how a living person can also become a ghost. Mm. And I'm not saying that... When, when I say the characters are go the, the narrators are ghosts, I'm being a little bit glib there, but also like, that's a proposition mm. that I'm just kind of throwing out for people to consider who maybe haven't read it. Um, because on the other hand, they're also not. I know exactly who those characters are. Mm. I, kn I know who they are. Um, I know what their backstory is. There's, a, there's, often been, there's often been an assumption, I think, in, on behalf of a few reviewers or people that have read it, that they're all kind of like, that these are auto-fictions and they're, that they're all versions of me, which you can say about literally any writer's work, but, um, but I think the persistence of that I uh, has led people to kind of make an assumption that it's maybe a singular narrator. 
I'm not. I'm disinclined to prescribe or, or, or say whether it is or not. But I'm going to kind of sort of say that it's not. <laughs> that it's, it's actually not. That they are actually they are actually different different. You know, they are different characters to me. They are anyway. Um, and I know and I know who they are. And they are also they 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 flag who they are subtly in different ways. You know, and there's, there's, little, there's little clues and there's little bits and pieces that are there for people who might be able to pick up certain signifiers or whatever. Mm. Um, but they're, you know, the sort of superstructural elements of their identities are, are deliberately obscured, yeah. And that is, there was really only one reason for that, and that is I wanted the reader to be able to experience the story as the narrator was experiencing it. Um, without necessarily the kind of, um, not, the not, not, the, not the disruption, but without any kind of like predetermined understanding of, of why things were being perceived the way they were. Mm. I wanted people to be able to inhabit the stories with, with the immediacy that you might inhabit a film, you know. Um, yeah. I think you've done that very successfully, and I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why on finishing a book like this, you do feel inhabited by the stories. Mm. It's because you have so skillfully lured the reader into the position of the narrator. Mm. Um, I, uh, I read in an interview, or maybe I heard you say this, that you wrote these stories for yourself, but your other work as an artist mm. tends to not necessarily, that's not necessarily the case. Mm. What what will you can you speak to a little bit about the difference in approach I guess for mm. this creative work you know writing for yourself I understand you've spoken a little bit about what that serves yeah but how do, how has the process been different for you from then your production of other artwork which has perhaps got an intended audience oh god it's radically different um, it's radically different and it's still and I'm still learning you know I'm still learning how to negotiate that gear shift both in terms of practice and then in terms of delivery, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a completely different space for me, the space that I have to be, or the, the person I have to be to be a writer is really different to the person that I have to be when I'm being an artist or when I'm being a curator or when I'm doing other stuff. Um, it all comes from more or less the same space in me, but it has to be filtered through different and calibrated through different lenses to serve different outputs, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. What sort of um, outputs have you got in mind, though, when it comes to, say, and perhaps mm. you'd like to speak to a little bit of, of yeah. the sort of artwork that you do as well, just to give people um, a sense of it. Oh, God, I hate talking about my art practice. It's the we can skip it. That's fine. I'm, I, make, I make performance mostly, but also I'm a, I'm a visual artist and a performance artist, and I do kind of long-durational, very body-based body work. Um, but I also work in sound, I've done some sculptural work, I've done different things, you know. I've um, done a little bit of work in film, um, and I also do increasingly um, curatorial work. So I run a, a, I established a platform called Knowledge of Wounds in 2019, and uh, that's predominantly based in, in, on Turtle Island in the US, but it's kind of an inter, intercontinental inter-hemispheric inter, inter indigenous cultural exchange space, um, which I now run with my collaborator, Joseph Pierce, uh, who's a Cherokee scholar. Uh, so that, you know, that, for instance, is, you know, the curatorial framework, all of the, um, 
the way that we design that. But there's still a lot of viscera in, in the way that we are designing that program. But at the end of the day, this, it's, the, it's the structure of an artistic program, which is my creative work or our creative work. And then that is the, the vessel to then hold and support other artists, which is really, really different to writing a book, which is this like solitary Sisyphean fucking labour of sitting at your desk, <laughs> pumping out words. <laughs> like it's absurd, you know. Um, and there's, there's no, and you, you, obviously you have your allies in that and you have your cheerleaders and you, know, you, you were a mentor to me when I was finishing Permafrost and, and that playback wouldn't have gotten written if it wasn't for you because I hated that story. I hated writing it. No idea It was why. like pulling teeth. <laughs> um, and uh, so you, Permafrost wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for this one, to be honest. I probably wouldn't have finished it. So round of applause. No, for, no, no. Um, I didn't yeah. write a word of this book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, and, and obviously my, my publisher has been amazing and my agent's been amazing and you have, you have your peers and your stuff, but at the end of the day, it's just you and your shit, yeah. you know. Um, you know, curatorial labour is very collaborative. Um, the work that I do as a performance artist and performance maker is still pretty much mostly me. I have my bulk of my... The bulk of my career has been very solo, but you're ultimately still working with people and... Also, the themes and the stuff that I'm that I've, I've 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 done a lot of different things as an artist, and I've kind of I've made work about a lot of different themes. Mm. But a lot of it is very centered in my my cultural identity and my queer identity and my trans identity and all that sort of stuff. And um, a lot of it is is very kind of highly politically charged and, and engaged in political dialectics and its work about power. Mm. Um, and so it is therefore inherently relational. And, and doing that kind of work, particularly as an Aboriginal artist, you know, it, it involves engagement, in, involves deep engagement with wherever you're working and wherever you're going, you know, which it, that's not absent from my writing either at all, but it's just, it's present in a different way. And there's a different degree of protocol that you have to engage. Um, so, you know, as I get older, I want to spend less and less time interacting with people. <laughs> Which is a great quality to have as a writer. So, um, whereas I've been pretty pro-social most of my life and I think the pandemic has actually turned me into a recluse, demi-recluse. So, I'm kind of, I'm not moving away from, from performance work and certainly not moving away from curatorial work, but moving more deeply back into a writing practice feels something which is quite like something which is quite aligned with what yeah. I want to be doing with my life right now, which is hiding out. Um, oh, look, I think we all deserve a round of applause for even showing up today. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's yeah. been a hard couple of years. At 10 in the morning, no less. I know, goodness. well done. I um, really didn't show up. <laughs> you did good. We're here I now. Did, I did, just, just. <laughs> Um, we're going to open up to questions now. Um, um, I'd like to ask you, I'm going to ask you the cruelest question of all, whichever gets asked at these festivals, and ask you if you are working on anything else at the moment. <laughs> I'm always working on like 50 things. Okay. Yeah, I'm very promiscuous in my interests. <laughs> and I always have a few, I've <laughs> got a few on the go. <laughs> um, but yes, I am. Um, one thing that I am working on is a book of uh, long form nonfiction. Um, I shared a little bit, I don't know if anyone was at the Storytelling Gala last night, I shared a piece from that. Um, 
and I'll be sharing a piece from the same, the same work in progress at Queer Stories tonight, along with Hannah. Uh, so there's that. Um, I'm working on a film. I'm working on a screenplay, which is really exciting. Uh, also going to be very gothic and very gay. And um, I'm working on that with a, with a, collaborator, with a collaborator of mine called Sam Miklow, who I've made okay. a film with before. He actually adapted a short film adaptation of Hinterhouse, made a film called The Moth, um, which I'm also in, if you ever want to see me be an actor, it's pretty funny. <laughs> um, and I am obviously always have kind of art projects going on and Knowledge of Wounds is ongoing and that's all doing its thing. But writing-wise, there was also, you know, everyone's, everyone wants a novel from me. Mm, I can imagine. <laughs> so that's how publishing works. They're <laughs> like, oh, short stories, we can't do anything with that. Um, uh, so everyone wants a novel, and I guess I have to write a novel. <laughs> um, and uh, there, was a, there was about four stories that got cut out of this manuscript, uh, and one of them was a story that I never finished called Milk Teeth, which you read some early drafts yeah. of. Um, that, I think, wants to be a novel. I would agree with that. Yeah. It's, and it's a story, it's, it's kind of about, it's going to be, a, I think, a novel about, like, like monst monstrosity and monstrous, the monstrous feminine, monstrous birthing, monstrous mothers. Yeah. Sounds wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Can't wait to read it. Maybe we'll go to our first question here. Hi. SJ, my question is embarrassingly pragmatic. Amazing. <laughs> um, what form did your manuscript take for all those years? Was it on a USB or a floppy disk or on your laptop or oh. on paper? And did you worry about losing it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I worried about losing it. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I, I am not... I'm not an organised person. I've... I've I'm very ADHD. Everything that I do, I have piles of things, and that includes my my laundry and my work. You know, everything's just. So it was in paper. I, I had paper paper versions of the manuscript. Have um, I actually? I was clearing out my studio the other day, and I found a stack like this of of marked up old million year old archaeological versions of, of permafrost, which all um, went immediately in the skip. Um, so I, did, I had pa paper working copies, um, but for the most part, it was just a digital, a digital file saved, you know, like this. I also kept each, each files of each of the stories individually and then the collection, um, you know, final, final, final draft number <laughs> 22. <laughs> Yeah, on my very messy desktop on my barely functioning MacBook. <laughs> yeah. Um, do we have a question over here now? Yeah, first of all, thank you for today. It's nice to be amongst people who think deeply. Um, I have a question about your life as an artist. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm fascinated by how broad it is and the way you've, the way you've worked into your art practice. Mm -hmm. So I'd be really grateful if you'd comment on a couple of things. One is how you find the courage to keep on going as yeah. an artist in a country and perhaps in a world that generally repudiates you. Um, and um, the, the what, speaking, sorry? The, the world that repudiates artists, mm. generally speaking. Yeah. Um, uh, and I'd also like to know um, uh, how much events such as this and the kind of public face of it affects 
the, the artistic activity that you undertake? Mm. Good questions, thank you. How do I keep going? How do we keep going? <laughs> How do I... Spite. <laughs> yeah. Bloody-mindedness, spite. Um, and also, because, like, this is all I'm good at. I've had, I've had many other jobs. Many, I've had many, many, I've done many, many, many other things for money, and I always get sacked. This is the only thing I'm good at. Um, so I don't have a choice but to show up and, and do my work and la labour the way we all got to labour under, you know, late-stage capitalism. Um, and, and I guess I try to occupy some position of gratitude that I do get to do this, you know. Um, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, and also, for me, uh, that's, all, that's me being, being very pragmatic, but... And it's, it's hard to say this without being really, sounding really, without, I get squeamish having to say this out loud, but it's a deeply spiritual practice for me, and it's a cultural practice, you know. Um, and to a certain extent, even a religious practice. I can say that because I won the Blake Prize. Um, so there's that. When I'm really flagging, I have to remember that, that there are... Um, that my responsibility is to story, and that, and by that I mean capital S story in the in the blackfella sense of the word, you know, and that that's that's my job in this lifetime is to show up and show up and do my work and shut up about it even when it's hard, especially in this country. How and and I deal with that by getting out as often as I can, um, or getting or getting out on country as often as I can. That's one of the reasons why the last couple of years has been hard because I've been stuck in the city, you know. Um, and the second question was, how do events like this... Yes, how, what's the, how, how do events like this and the sort of the, the public face that you mm. have to present, mm. how does that affect your work? How is mm. it, what kind of role does it play? Mm. And, um, you know, negative or positive? Mm. Good question. Um, it's a double bind, you know. I, I actually... I don't love attention. Um, I don't love being the centre of attention, despite being a performance artist, lol. Um, I, 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 but I do like talking to people, sometimes. And, and, you, and, it is, and it is a beautiful gift to be able to interact with people who have enjoyed your work, because like I said, you know, most of what we do is very solitary labour. And um, so it's wonderful to get some energy back um, and know that that all of that work is connecting with people. At the same time, um, a part of me is just like, does not want to be perceived. You know, I, like, I, I, don't, I don't love, I don't crave the spotlight at all. Um, and I think especially when you're kind of stepping into a, or, or, or working in a, when you have a public life as a creative practitioner, who also has, you know, represents multiple experiences of like multiply marginalised, quote unquote, marginalised identities. There is a, there's a lot of pressure to represent in a certain way, and there is a lot of um, there's a lot of psychic noise that comes with that. That I think can lead to like especially high attrition rates for 
queer artists and black artists and you know that's a hard that's that's a hard slog that you've got to kind of learn to metabolize as you mature and I'm still I still struggle with that mm. thank you for your question we've got time for one more quick one Okay, um, thanks very much, Hannah and SJ. I, I found that really inspiring. Um, and SJ, reading, having read Permafrost, I love the way you have um, a real originality in the way you use language and um, your use of kind of metaphor, like the, the lint on the lozenge, <laughs> you know, for the, the pate of the man's head. But what I was wondering is um, how do you access kind of all this it, when you sit down to write? Like, what are you kind of your techniques or your process to get you into that mindset before you write? Do you have a way or even a, a physical thing, environment that puts you into the space or, yeah, that's I kind of have two modes. Um, one is the sort of like crouching on a pl train platform, feverishly scrawling something that's just come to me on my phone. Um, there's a lot of that, you know. I tend to I tend to work quite ambiently, if that doesn't sound completely pretentious. But um, I'm not I'm not the kind of you know, generally speaking, not this kind of very disciplined writer who sits at a desk every day and you know and 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 does does the work. I'm not that guy, you know. I tend to go about my business and then and pieces and fragments of a story will come to me if I'm listening for them, and they'll arrive because they'll be triggered by something that I've seen in the world, usually. And then I'll get to the desk and I'll find a way to compile them and, then, and craft those into a piece, eventually. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of waiting for things to, to come or be catalyzed by, you know, my sort of sensory experience of the world. Um, and then when I am, when I do have the time and the space and the capacity to, to sit down and be that guy who does, this, does the day at the desk, then I tend to ritualize it quite heavily. Um, you know, I have, I have things and protocols that I do when I'm, when I'm sitting down to work in that kind of way. Um, and that usually involves connecting with my body first and foremost and with, with place and with the land where I am. Um, and I tend to find that things flow in a particular way when I prioritize um, yeah, the, the embodied aspects of my craft as a writer. Yeah. So you mean like things like meditation, or how do you get in touch with your body when you're actually... That's my tricks and secrets. Your tricks, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's my tricks and secrets. Okay. Yeah, usually, um, sometimes, uh, you know, um, not, not necessarily meditation, but, but things that I would use in performance practice sometimes. Um, engaging my voice can be really important, you know. Uh, in, in engaging my, you know, engaging my physicality is really important to me. My body is really central to my work, and that's where, that's the channel that information comes. That's the way you, that's the way I listen, you know. So I want to make sure that every part of me is listening. Yeah, it's, it's a great corporate. What's the word? Corporeal, corporeal yeah. sense in your writing. So yeah, thanks yeah. very much. Thanks for the answer. Thank you, all, Thank you for the question. Thank you all so much for coming here today. Um, SJ, you've been so incredibly generous. Um, SJ will be available for a book signing. I do encourage you to go, please go get a copy of Permafrost. You're not going to regret it. Thank you all so much for coming and please join me in thanking SJ. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.